Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Church. Well, kind of like Ricky Bobby, I don't know what to do with my body. Um, I, I have to say, um, it's been a hot minute since I have been before you, and um, it all had to do with I had a really, really bad dentist appointment that led to me basically having this really bad lisp for a couple weeks. And now I kind of maybe a little bit have it worked out. So if I slur a little bit of speech, I haven't been hitting anything wacky. It's just I'm working through it. All right. All right. I'm working through it. This morning, we're going to continue on in our sermon series through the book of Romans. How many of you are excited to spend four years of your life Yeah, to go through the book of Romans, um, I know I am, uh, I can only speak for me, but I'm also a junkie when it comes to this kind of stuff. So this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans, say Romans, Romans. chapter number one, Romans chapter number one, and we're going to start at verse number uno. If you got it, say got it. If you don't say, hold up. All right, that's on you because we gave you a New Testament of just Romans. It's like page three. All right, Paul, chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the word of the Lord, church. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Asking God that as we open your scriptures, as we begin to dissect your words, as we begin to exposit or exfoliate the word, Lord, God, may it permeate in our hearts. May it move us to burn away the dross, to burn away the sin and the shame and the brokenness that we have today and live in the freedom that is in your spirit because where you are, there is freedom. Lord, move in and to and through us for your sake, for your glory. It is in Jesus' name that we do pray, amen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the work for the gospel of God. I have two volunteers this morning that I've asked to come up. And so I'm going to ask my, my, my first volunteer to come up. I'm not, I'm not going to say his name because that's the whole purpose. He's coming up here. But in 60 seconds or less, 
I want you to tell me about yourself. Tell, tell us about you, 60 seconds or less. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Nelson. I'm uh, originally from Paducah, Kentucky, born here in 1970. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Ellie, for 24 years now. We live in Brookport now, right across the river there. Uh, we have two daughters, Emma, who's age 22, and Abby, who's 14. Uh, we've been coming to rest since last summer. Enjoyed being here with you all and becoming a part of, of what you do here. And I'd like to say that I'm very excited about the Roman study that we're doing right now. I remember as a young Christian at the age of 12 when I started reading my Bible, I was talking to my mom about it, and she said Romans has always been one of my favorite books. So I thought, well, that's the place I want to start digging into then. And I've, uh, there's so many good truths in there that tell us about the human condition. We've all sinned, but God's taken care of that through what he did through Jesus Christ. And just, amen. 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 That's right. Yeah. Well, let's give it up for Paul. Yeah. I wasn't sure if he was going to preach there for a second. Man bringing the word up here. That's a supplemental index. All right. Next volunteer. All right. 60 seconds or less. Tell us about you. Now, 60 seconds, okay? Because I'm going to preach for an hour. So you, you. I know. I set my watch, and that's true. I think volunteer is a loose term because um, I'm currently sort of regretting being friends with Cody, but here I am. Um, my name is Missy Quint, and I would probably be um, just not genuine if I didn't tell you how I really would describe myself to people. I would probably not say a lot about myself. It would be more about my kids. Um, I would say that I have been married to my husband, Matt, for 28 years. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, he is um, at work today. He's not here, but normally is. And we have three kids that we're very, I'm very proud to be their mom. Uh, Neely is 26. <laughs> so <laughs> proud. Coming up. Uh, Chloe just turned 24, and Eli is 19. He's home from college and here today, which makes me extremely happy. I would probably tell you that. Um, it's been a year or two of a lot of change for me because my kids have, we're empty nesters for the first time. And, you know, Cody didn't know when he um, asked me to speak that uh, it has been a year of like changing a little bit of identity crisis for me because I am just would identify as a mom. Uh, that's just kind of what I, who I would say that I am. We love it here at Rest. Um, we've been here since 2019. I grew up Catholic, so this is not some place I would have like envisioned myself to be, um, and came to know Jesus through meeting my husband and his family. So, um, so yeah, that is, that is kind of my story. Let's give it up for both of our volunteers, Paul and Missy. Hey, if you're having marriage struggles, I think those are two perfect families for you to go hang out with. There's a testament to making it through marriage that lasts that long. Amen. All right. So, the premise of what I'm trying to do here is kind of our main theme, our main point of what we're going to look at as we come into the scriptures today. It's this, how we introduce ourselves is how we see ourselves. How we introduce ourselves is how we see ourselves. Now, that sometimes will change just a tad bit, right? Can we all agree it's all about the audience sometimes, about the things that you say about yourself. When I'm at work, I tend to talk about my career, my accomplishments, or what I can bring to the table in that moment. When I'm at home, my kids don't care about the fact that dad plays engineer at work. Unless they want me to do some Lego project. They, they don't care about that, right? And, and, and when, I'm, when I'm here, you don't necessarily care about the fact that I'm an ex-wrestler and then I grew up and did all that. You, you, don't, you don't care about that. And so sometimes, depending on the place or the audience, we change what we say. I want you to check out this, this particular bit about how Paul introduces himself. First, we saw, as we saw last week, when Pastor A.B. preached on the word, the name Paul for an hour, don't ever come at me again. <laughs> this, is, this is how Paul introduces himself. He says this, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be what church? An apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
So this is how Paul introduces himself. What is Paul saying to us? He's saying, this is my identity. This is how I identify myself. Right off the front of this, this great epistle, one of the greatest works in all of Christendom is this right here. And he's saying to all who would read it for the next 2,000 years that I, Paul, am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and who has been set apart, who has been plucked up out of the place he was in and set and called for a specific purpose. There's so much to unpack here. Like so much so that many of the greatest biblical scholars in all of Christendom have have spent multiple sermons to unpack those three phrases. But I thought you deserved to have it all in one. I've set my alarm for 2 p.m., because I have to get on my flight. I have to leave town by then. What Paul is getting at here is simple, yet profound. He wants the readers on the most basic level to know that Jesus Christ is his identity. Jesus is the very fabric that makes his life. Jesus is the cadence that keeps him going. Jesus is the drumbeat that he marches to. Can we all agree to that? How, how do we know this? How, how, do we, how, do, how do we glean this from what's going on? Because this is what I want to tell you. If there is a book that I would encourage you to download a special app called Blue Letter Bible, um, you need to download that app. And then what you need to do is when you're studying Romans, you need to click on there and go to the uh, interlinear translation so that you can see what's going on in the Greek. Because today I'm going to point out some things that to you that are going on in the Greek that are so massive that if we just read it in the English translation, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And so here's number one. We see that Paul, a servant, this word, this term servant is a poor, I would even contend a terrible translation of what's going on in the Greek. In fact, in the Greek, the word here is doulos. Say doulos. This particular um, um, word has one or two meanings. In fact, scholars kind of have this ongoing debate as to what it means. And there's lots of complexity as to whether it means one or the other. And, And it really centers around a couple different things. But first, the number one thing that it potentially could mean is bond servant. Say bond servant. If you have your your little Bible right there, I want you to underline the one we gave you, underline servant, and out to the side, you're going to write servant, and you're going to say, actually, aka, bondservant backslash slave. A bondservant was a person who sold themselves into servanthood in order to pay a debt. Okay, so they didn't have banking systems like we do today. You know, you couldn't go into Fifth Third Bank. You couldn't go into U.S. Bank and and say, hey, Uncle Caesar, I need a loan. No, no, no. You you would go sell yourself into servanthood. And as, as you would do that, you would sell yourself to a wealthy person who would give you a sum of money and then you would be a servant working for them until you paid back that debt. That's a bond servant. Okay? So when we when we talk about slavery a lot of times in Judaism, that is the 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 premise is bond servant. Okay? But the other potential transliteration, the other potential meaning is slave. And it means exactly what you learned in school for it to mean. Slave, it is a person who has been purchased, who does not have free will, who they they literally are subjugated to the demands of their Lord, of their master at all times, all hours of the day. This great debate kind of centers around a couple things. Number one, it centers around who was the audience to which Paul's writing. And you say, well, that's easy. No, no, it's really not. Because if you remember what A.B. talked about last week, the the, the church in Rome was a blended church. 
It wasn't just a Jewish church, and it wasn't just a Greek or a Gentile church. No, it was a, it was a blended church. And so it's hard for us to distinguish, is it meaning bondservant, a person who is basically sold themselves into servanthood in order to pay a debt, or is it a slave? I would contend to you that in, in my research, and my study, what I believe, and I'm going to say this is, this is just me and my personal belief, and I believe that a slave is actually probably the best and strongest case. And, and, and the reason why is because outside of the English translation and all other translations in international languages, the word slave is used. And it's used, and I'm not going to get into this a whole lot. I had it written in there, but the sermon's long enough on its own. Is that everywhere that you see this term doulos, it is linked inextricably with Christos, which is Christ, okay? And you say, well, yeah, servant of Christ. That means Jesus. But Christ has three meanings in the Greek. One is sir, another is a slave owner, and the third is the anointed one of Israel. So it kind of has this three meanings. So if we were to put together doulos with Christos, the best transliteration would probably be slave based on that connotation. Well, you say, Pastor, why in the English does that not come through? Well, it has to do with when the King Jimmy was written. In case you don't know, if you haven't been around, that's my word for King James Version. Um, I don't mean any shade to that. I grew up reading the King James it's my whole life. But when the King James Version came out, and it wasn't the first English translation. In fact, the first English translation, does anybody know who it was? Starts with a T. Tyndale, that's right. And that particular phrase, slave, was omitted because as you can imagine, there is the abolitionists who are going through Europe during this time, and, and this word brings a lot of negative connotation, right? And so they, they elected, instead of putting slave in there, even though it was probably the best transliteration, they elected to use servant or bondservant. And so I, 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 would, I would say, hey, slave's probably the best. But honestly, I don't think it really matters. And the reason why I say I don't think it matters is, is because there, there's, there's this deeper meaning either way. In both cases, bondservant or slave underscore that he, Paul, or we collectively have all been purchased. That there was a sum of money transacted for us. That there was a legal demand for you. You were special. You were expensive. Paul was special. Paul was expensive. And so there's this legal transaction that has taken place. There was a price that had to be paid for us. Under the law, it required blood. In fact, the, the scriptures teach us where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there was blood needed. In fact, Paul addresses this very topic in 1 Corinthians, in the earlier epistle when he writes, he says, for you were bought with a what church? So glorify God with your body. Why, why did we need to be bought? Why did we need the blood of Jesus to be transacted? Why was there this legal demand standing against us? Because for the wages of sin is death. And so we needed a, a life for a life. We needed a substitution for our life because according to God the Father, we stood directly at the point of his wrath. By nature, we ourselves are slaves to the flesh. 
We are a slave to one or two things in this life. And that's what Paul is driving home at. We're a slave to one or two things in this life. What is it? We're either a slave to our flesh, our sin nature, doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, or we are a slave to Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's nothing outside of that two categories. It's either slave to Jesus or slave to our flesh. We are both sinners by nature and by choice. And the price for our freedom from our flesh was the blood of Christ. Our sin left us in debt to God and it required the blood payment. Jesus purchased our freedom with his own blood. So when Paul says he is a doulos, he is saying, I am under the authority of Jesus because he paid the debt I could not. Amen? He paid the debt that we could not. But, 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 I want you to, I want you to check this out. See, being a slave to Christ is not being like a slave to your flesh and to your sin. Why? Why? Because the, the, the joy of what Paul is communicating here in Romans is, is, is not necessarily seen in this one phrase. But if we unpack it, what we see is that if we're a slave to Jesus, we do not fall under the yoke of oppression like an earthly slave master. No, 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 what Jesus says, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That yoke, that thing that goes around the horse of a mule or of a, of a, of a, of a, a horse, yeah, horse or mule, I said it already. If it goes around their necks, he's saying it's not oppressive, it's, it's not hard on you. No, in fact, it's the opposite because what we see through the scriptures also in the second epistle of Corinthians, we see that Paul writes speaking of his slavery to Jesus. He says, but where the spirit of the Lord is, what is it, church? There is freedom. There is freedom for you who have been saved by Jesus Christ. While you are a slave to him, while he might be your Lord and your master, you are free from your sin. And he isn't dictating your every mood. He isn't pushing down upon you. No, it is a delight to serve Jesus. So he says, the implication here is Jesus is Paul's Lord and master. When he says doulos, he says servant or slave, bondservant. Jesus is my Lord and my master. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. What, what, what does that mean? What, what's, the, what's the meaning there? The office of apostle was not one that you could, you know, go to Harvard and study for. It's not one that, you, you, you know, you go sit through a bunch of seminars and you get a bunch of certificates one day at Bible college and all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, you're an apostle now. That's, that's not the connotation that we find in the scriptures, you couldn't be elected one either. It wasn't a popularity contest. It wasn't like a, you know, like most churches and their deacons, you know, popularity contest. They get, you know, how popular are you? Become a church leader as if that really, whatever. I won't unpack that. In fact, the New Testament teaches us there are three major criteria to be an apostle. Three, okay? So what are these three major criteria. Number one, you have to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? Number one, a disciple of Jesus. And I want to say this before we go any further because it's huge. It has massive implications. Not every disciple was an apostle, okay? Did you catch that? Not every disciple was an apostle because what we know is from church history is that there were 12 apostles, but we also know that at one point in Jesus' ministry, he sends out 72 disciples. And so not every single disciple is an apostle. 
A disciple, in, in what it truly means is a learner, somebody who's following under the tutelage, under the teaching of a rabbi. But an apostle is a specific office for a specific person who has been plucked out for a specific job. Number two criteria, eyewitness of the resurrection. A a literal eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the third and final is commissioned personally by Jesus. Now, that all sounds great, but there's a big problem when it comes to Paul. All of that is great. This is, this is exactly what the New Testament church said. They said, these are the criteria. They laid it out before the, before the you know, all, all the New Testament church. And they're saying, this is it. And Paul's over here going, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle. This is where the conflict comes. It's because if we truly dive into the text, what we find is Paul only meets about one and a half of this criteria. One and a half. What, 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 what do you mean, pastor? What do you mean? He, he's, he's the dude who wrote half the book. The New Testament book. What are we going to do if he's not an apostle? Why are we reading this madness? Heresy! This was such a big deal that Paul addressed this on multiple occasions in his epistles. In fact, he addresses this in 2 Corinthians at great length because it became such a debate that the the Judaizers who had came into the church in Corinth were beginning to say he's not a real apostle, so we can't listen to what he's saying. We need to go about doing this thing because they kept wanting to drag the church uh, of Corinth back into the kind of this works-based theology, I mean, in in Galatia, into this works-based theology. In the New Testament, this is, this is such an important debate and it carries such significance because in the New Testament, an apostle is equivalent to that of an Old Testament prophet. Okay? You're like, okay, I mean, your wheels are spinning. I can see them. You're right. I'm really close to people and I can see their wheels turning right now. The New Testament apostle is equivalent to the Old Testament prophet. So why this, is, this is the reason why this debate is so big, so complex in the New Testament. Meaning that when they wrote, they wrote on behalf of God. When they spoke, they spoke as if God was speaking. Therefore, their words had an enormous amount of weight. Can we all agree that? Right, because when you're speaking, you're saying, thus says the Lord, you're saying, I'm taking on the audible voice of God in that moment, saying this is a decree from God on high. That carries a significant amount of weight. And I want to tell you this right here. If you hear any pastor say to you today, thus says the Lord, and it isn't, isn't coming right from this book, man, you need to be like, yo, get away from me, Satan. Because the canon is closed. The apostleship is closed. The New Testament apostles were the head of the church. They were the elders who led the body and wrote the holy scriptures we have today. So let's break down this debate around Paul because it's so important for us to understand where he's coming from, why he says, called to be an apostle. Paul did not serve Jesus while Jesus was alive. Paul wasn't a disciple. He wasn't one of the disciples. You can make the case, did, did, did Paul see the resurrected Jesus? It's a, it's a complicated question, right? It's all, all about timing. Did Paul see the resurrected Jesus? Yeah, yeah, we'll read that here in a second. On the road to Damascus, he sees the resurrected Jesus. But did he see Jesus prior to the ascension? No. In fact, Paul, Paul talks about that. We're going to look at that here in a second. But he, he doesn't actually see Jesus prior to his ascension into heaven post his resurrection. This would suggest there is one qualification much more important than all of the rest of them. What is that qualification? Commissioned personally by Jesus. Was Paul personally commissioned by Jesus? Yes. In fact, 
the framers of the book of Acts wanted you to know that Paul was commissioned by Jesus. They wanted you to know so much that on three separate occasions, check this out, on three separate occasions, they tell the story, the conversion of Paul. Why? Because it plays humongous impact on his apostleship. Everything rides on this thing. What are those three? Acts 9, 1 through 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Paul's conversion in Acts 9 is one of the most powerful conversions in all of the New Testament. Paul clearly is called out by Jesus Christ himself. Check this out. Acts chapter 9, 3 through 5. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am who, church? Whom you are persecuting. Everybody, if you read this whole account, everybody's freaking out who's with Paul, right? Like, they're like, where is this voice coming from? You know, it kind of reminds me of Wizard of Oz. So we can confirm that Paul was a prophet of Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul was an equal prophet to that of Peter, James, and John. Additionally, the former 11 prophets, I mean, uh, apostles accepted Paul as the apostle, the final apostle of the New Testament church. So that brings up another question. Can there be apostles today? Can there theologically be apostles today? There are some clowns out there who say they're an apostle. But the truth is no. Not in the biblical New Testament sense. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul makes it clear that he would be the final apostle. If somebody, somebody today says, I'm an apostle of Jesus, you need to run away from them. Run away from them because they're going to speak and spew heresy. They're more than likely going to be a word of faith teacher. Just, just run away from them as fast as you can because they are not teaching the scriptures according to the apostolic tradition. And, and one thing that, 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 that I can't stress enough is there is a reason why church history is so important. It's because it drives us to the apostolic tradition. It drives us back to the very teachings of Peter, Paul, James, and John. And, and we cannot deviate from them. If we deviate from them, we might as well close the doors and forget what we're doing here. So coming back to Romans chapter 1, wrapping up this verse that we spent a lot of time on. Set apart for the gospel of God. As if Paul has not already went to great depths describing his position and his relationship with Christ Jesus, he takes it one step further and showing us his purpose. What is Paul's purpose? What is his chief aim? What is everything? What is his life mantra? He has been set apart for what, church? The gospel. The gospel. He's been set apart for the gospel. That, that word set apart means to be marked off from others, to be separated, to be demarcated from. It means that he has a specific and special calling on his life. And what is that appointment? It is the gospel of God. And, and something cool is happening here. The gospel of God, that phrase in the Greek, it, it's a genitive. Say genitive. What it means is it is a possessive phrase, the gospel of God. It is not Paul's gospel. It is not John's gospel. It is not Matthew's gospel. It is not Luke's gospel. It's not Peter's gospel. It is whose gospel, church? God's gospel. It is a possessive gospel. That, that phrase genitive means it is possessive. What, with that in mind, we could translate what he's saying there is that he's been set apart for God's good news about himself. Do you hear that? He's been set apart for God's good news about himself. Make no mistake, God is in the business of bringing glory to himself. The gospel is who, not what, church. 
I want you to, I want you to see that. I want you to write that down. The gospel is who, not what. Because if we, if we break down this word in the Greek um, that, that we see there, it's euangelion. And, and, and that word literally means good herald. A good herald. Hold on. This word has an illustrated meaning. So when somebody says gospel, we, we kind of, we've com- made it very complex today. You can go into a church and you hear pastors say gospel this, gospel that, gospel, 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 gospel. If you're, especially if you hear me preach, I say gospel probably 50 times every sermon. But in its literal root meaning, it means good herald. And, and what does it come from? It comes from a first century illustration. When an emperor would go off to fight and they have secured victory, they would send forth a herald, a person who would go running. And as they're running, if they're winning the battle, as you can imagine, there's a difference between the run of winning a battle and losing a battle, running back to report. But as he's running to declare that, that they have won the battle, they, they used to say that you could tell the herald who was coming by the dust that they were kicking up whether they were going to win the fight or not. And so as that herald would come, that herald would tell the news of the great victory secured on behalf of the emperor, that he has secured peace and that he has established authority. He would send heralds, Angolia, to declare his victory and peace and authority. And so here, put most simply, the gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration. Paul is screaming to us, I am the herald. I am kicking up the dust for the good news of Jesus. I have been set apart to be a sprinter to carry the good news. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is news, good news about what has been done. What is the gospel? It is God's good news that man can escape his sin and death through the blood of Jesus. That God the Father has completely emptied his wrath upon God the Son on the cross. And that three days later, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Paul wants it to be clear to the church in Rome, telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ is not his hobby, church. It is not something that fills his two-hour window on a Sunday morning. It is not something that he just does in his spare time it is his absolute total identity that he is called to carry the good news of Jesus Tim Keller says this he says to Paul the gospel is so great that he is willing to separate himself from anything wealth health acclaim friends safety and so on in order to be faithful to his calling And as we close out verse one, I want to say this again. How we introduce ourselves is how we see ourselves. So when you make your introduction, does Christ make your top three? That's right, let that sink in. Does Christ make your top three? Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So, so we got to link together verse 1 and 2. We can't separate them out. So, so once again, we're talking about the gospel here. The good news. The Eliangelion. The good news. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Contrary to popular opinion, the New Testament... And the Old Testament don't tell the story of two different gods. There's continuity between the two Testaments. The Old Testament, in fact, church, is the foundation for the gospel. I want you to write that down, man. Write that big, like 75 font. The Old Testament is the foundation for the gospel. 
Although God revealed the gospel to the apostles, it did not come to them as something entirely new. For it was already promised in the scriptures. The gospel is no Johnny-come-lately story. Gospel promises had been written down for hundreds of years. Gospel promises were so important that they were talked about through the Israelites, through generations. This is why Christians, we don't carry around just a little thin New Testament. That's why we carry around a big Bible, man. God's redemptive narrative starts early in the scriptures and it carries throughout the entire book. In fact, it starts in the book of Genesis. In fact, it starts in the garden. Genesis chapter three, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust shall eat all the days of your life. But here, here, here's the gospel. Here it is, verse 15, verse 15, write it down, Genesis 3.15. It's the first proclamation of the gospel in the book. Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise his. This is actually called in Latin the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium. And what that is, is it is the first gospel. It is the first pronouncement that God will squash both Satan and death. Right here, Genesis chapter 3. It proclaims that God's people will finally triumph over the serpent. The seed of the woman is a collective noun, indicating corporate victory. Not singular, but corporate victory for all. The good news of the gospel is promised all throughout the scriptures, meaning this, church, that God the Father was not on his heels. He was not caught by surprise when, Jesus, I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And not only was he not surprised there, but he wasn't surprised when, when he thrusted the Israelites out of Egypt and, and they, they, they built this golden calf, the very people who are supposed to follow him, who he has just rescued, who he has thrusted out of the mighty hand of Pharaoh. He was not surprised. God the Father is never surprised. And the whole time from Genesis all the way through Malachi, he is screaming in the scriptures, I have a plan. I have a plan. I will rescue you from your sin. I will rescue you from your bondage. And praise be to God that he did. Amen? All scriptures point forward towards Jesus' death and resurrections. The scriptures, and especially the Old Testament church, are the scaffolding on which Paul stands as God's herald. You check that out? The Old Testament is the scaffolding that Paul is preaching from. We cannot remove the Old Testament from our story. We cannot remove the Old Testament from God's history because when we do, there is no platform from which Paul can speak. Verse three, concerning his son whom, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel is from God the Father about God the Son. Now, next week I'm going to get into this a little bit more. But if you were to go through these first few verses, these first seven verses, what you're going to find is that there is a triune God working to save us throughout the scriptures. It's either that or God has you know, paranoia, schizophrenia, and multiple personalities. And I don't believe that's the case. But what you see is this constant theme of God the Father working together to send forth God the Son to be raised by God the Holy Spirit to sanctify and seal his people with God the Holy Spirit. And so we see concerning his Son, the gospel church is for us, but it is not about us. You hear that? The gospel is for us, but it is not about us. 
Like, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't underscore this enough. The gospel is not about our glory, but about God's glory. The gospel is not about what we get, but about what God gave. And, and, and man, the modern church needs to hear this. Because the modern church has, has made the church an absolute self-worshipping idol factory. It's all about my breakthrough. Like, do you think when Paul and Silas were in the jail that they were singing about their breakthrough? Like, like no, man. No. They were saying, God, to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When the jailer came to know Jesus, they weren't, they weren't going, oh man, I hope I can get a new home. No, they were like, to God be the glory forever and ever, amen. The gospel is not about us. It's for us. It's not about what we get, but about what God gave. So we have to break down the walls of this, of this idol worshiping of ourselves. It's not about us. We have, to, we have to push into the contents of Scripture that, that say that we must die to ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. If you want to follow me, die to yourself daily. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, you're like, nah, nah, bro. I'm not down for that. gospel is not about what we get, but about what God gave concerning his son. The gospel is about his son. It's about God the Father sending forth God the Son who was descended from David. Now, now this, is, this is massive. This is massive. There's so much going on here. Jesus' genealogy matters when it comes to the promises of salvation in the Old Testament. And more specifically, God the Father's promise to King David. In fact, we have, we have two promises, two specific instances, 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 7, where God the Father promised to David that his offspring would establish a throne that would be forever. And not just that, more specifically, that, that this offspring of David's would be equally his son and his Lord at the same time. Jesus' link to David matters so much. This is why Paul, I mean, um, Luke spends so much time in his gospel kind of unpacking David's, I mean, the genealogy of Jesus back to David. If a direct link could not be made to David, Jesus could not be the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah. Jesus, in fact, does have a direct link to David through both his mother and his father. And so this morning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a snapshot just real quick up here on the screens. These are all the links. I'm not gonna give you more than 10 seconds to take that photo if you wanna take it. But there's a bunch of scriptures there that give you a direct link to David and Jesus. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The incarnation is part of the gospel story. Without the virgin birth, there is no resurrection. I want you to hear that. Without the virgin birth, there is no resurrection. It's critical that Paul underscore Jesus' physical birth because Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice, a great high priest. And in order to do that, he had to face everything that we face. And you're like, okay, uh, help, help me understand. Jesus, the God-man, became flesh and blood. Jesus became the second Adam. Okay, so in, 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 in our view of the scriptures here at Rest Church, we teach a federal head mindset in both sin and atonement. Okay, what I mean by federal head mindset of both sin and atonement is that when Adam sinned, that he sinned on behalf of all of humanity. That when Adam sinned, we all sinned through him, meaning that we are all born totally depraved, that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. 
that we come out of our mother's womb sinners, okay? And some, some grandmas always come to me and like, you're not going to make me believe that my little babies. Yes, he's a wicked sinner. Don't come at me. If you don't believe me, we'll put you in the nursery <laughs> and you'll find out real fast. And so we believe in this federal head system of both depravity and atonement. And what that means is that, so Adam sinned. When he sinned, he sinned on behalf of all of us. But Jesus was born the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man, okay? He is the seed, actually, of the Holy Spirit in a woman, meaning that the, the imputation, I'm getting, I didn't have this in my notes, but the imputation, which means he gave Adam gave us his unrighteousness. He passed down his unrighteousness. But Jesus broke the line of imputation by being the seed of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was the second Adam in the fact that he wasn't born by nature a sinner. And so Jesus fulfills the law perfectly and wholly and completely. And that when he dies, he becomes the perfect sacrificial lamb on the cross, which is why Jesus, as the scriptures say, and you hear me talk about frequently, is our propitiation, is that through his righteousness, he fulfilled the legal demands that the law brought and that God the Father had opposed at us. And so thereby, when we accept Jesus, he imputes his righteousness to us, meaning that when God the Father looks down upon us, he doesn't see us for our wicked, sinful state. No, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, his son, and the redemptive work that is done on the cross. And so when we unpack this idea of Jesus becoming the second Adam, it's because of the virgin birth. Jesus accomplished what Adam could not. By not succumbing to the temptation of sin, rather Jesus was perfect in every way while living in the flesh. Thus Jesus became the perfect high priest, able to save the whole of creation from their fallen nature. In fact, Luke, in the book of Hebrews, says this, verse 14, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, let us hold firm, let us hold tight to our confession. Verse 15. Write this down in your Bible, Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted are we, as we are yet, what church? Let's say that all together. Without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so now when we look back at verse three concerning his son who descended from David, According to the flesh, Jesus was a literal man who walked on the earth. He had to be born of flesh and blood so that he could take our place and he can impute his righteousness to each one of us so that we are no longer dead in our sins, but we are free from that bondage. Amen? So I come back to this as we close today's message, as we look at these first three verses. How we introduce ourselves. How we introduce ourselves is how we see ourselves. At the end of the day, how you identify yourself is a gospel matter. It has eternal gospel significance. If you are a doulos, a slave for Jesus, your chief identity is found in him. 
That identity is above all things, just as it was for Paul. It was above his career as a tent maker. It was above him moving on to get married and have a family. Paul chose to be celibate for Christ. It was the chief aim of his life. If he was here today, I'm convinced that he would say, it's above you being a mother. It's above you being a father. It's above you being a a, a daughter or a son. It's above you being a grandmother or a grandfather. Your obligation to the gospel should be chief identity in your life. What, 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 What was Paul's identity His identity was Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, in one of the epistles, he said, when I was among you, I I chose to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I'm gonna ask you today, what is your identity? If I was to ask you, just like I asked the first group to stand up, would, would Jesus make your top three? If somebody asks you today and they say, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Cody, and you say your name, how are you going to describe yourself? Is it your career? Is it your hobby? Or is it Jesus? Would you be honest with your spell? And speak in the echo chambers of your mind. What is the current chief identity in your life? And if I'm being honest, that's a loaded question. I mean, if we're being honest, I literally just hooked you to a tether and I kicked you off the side of the bridge, right? Like you're like, how do I I answer that? Like, because the truth of the matter is, is you could say today, yes, Jesus is my my true and chief identity, but you gotta make that choice every day single day, which is why Jesus said, take up your cross daily. It's not a one-time decision. It's a choice every day to identify yourself with Christ, to align yourself with Christ, to surrender your heart, your mind, your temptations, to surrender your frustrations to Jesus. And that place that you're in right now, and you, you say, man, this, this, gosh, I, I, I'm not making the cut. The, the purpose of that feeling is not to heap condemnation on you, but it is to draw you to repentance. It is to draw you into the right place in the center of God's will. Because what I do know is the gospel tells us that, 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 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning that the righteousness of God, if it has been imputed, if it has been passed to you, if you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, that you stand before God victorious. And so don't let that shame beat you down today, but let it motivate you and draw you into the throne room, into the presence of Jesus. Because I want to share one last verse because we talked about the gospel, man. If if there is a scripture in the the word that is just saturated with gospel, it's this. It comes to this and it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hear this. For our sake, he, Jesus, God the Father, for our sake, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, who made the perfect man who had lived a perfect and sinless life, who had done nothing wrong, despite all the things that you have done wrong, made him who knew no sin to become sin. 
so that in Jesus, in him, we, all of us, collective, all of humanity, might become the righteousness of God. You don't have to be dead in your sin today. You don't have to swallow in your shame anymore. You don't have to let your past bring you down. You don't have to say, I can't come to the presence of Jesus because of what I've done. There is no mountain, no sin too big because our God forgives all. And he's saying to you, don't stand on the outside. Don't stand out there, but come into the presence because I made him who knew no sin to become sin that you, each and every single one of you, could become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. So I ask you today, do you know Jesus as Lord? Are you a slave to Jesus? Jesus.